Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Today we're talking about the midterm elections that took place on November 8th, and to help us we have a returning guest to the show. Ian Saxine is a visiting assistant professor at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts, and back in July he came on the show to discuss the modern Democratic Party, and well we couldn't think of anyone more, more fitting to come on the show and talk about the midterm, so Ian, thank you so much for coming back on the show, and uh, I feel like you've probably been vindicated by some of the things you said back in the summer. Thanks so much for the return invite. I am. I am feeling vindicated uh, as a Democrat. Um, I I am always living partially in terror and always <laughs> suspicious of good news. And so mm-hmm. there is a there's an old saw about American politics where when the polls are bad, Republicans want to kill the pollsters and mm-hmm. Democrats want to kill ourselves. And the new twist is because the polls were not always reliable, that seemingly the polls that most made Republicans happy would be the Democrats are narrowly ahead. And the polls that made Democrats saddest were Democrats narrowly ahead. Um, and that, of course, those polls were accurate this time. So uh, which we can get into. But yes, I'm feeling very good about the Democrats managing to not achieve a bunch of own goals for historical context the president's party almost always takes a a whooping in midterm elections up and down the ballot Uh, most american states elect their governors and their state legislative elections in the midterm years besides the fact that the entire house of representatives and one-third of the senate is also up this is the first midterm election since 1934, when the president's party took control of a net number of state legislative chambers, in fact, gained any at all, uh, let alone uh, let alone net. The Democrats took a full trifecta in Michigan. That's the governor, state legislator, and state senate. They have not had a trifecta in Michigan since the year of my birth, 1983, um, and they did it this year when. Joe Biden, of all people, uh, Mr. 42% approval rating, held the White House. That is amazing. They also, we reclaimed a trifecta in Minnesota. Uh, We took the Pennsylvania House for the first time in a decade, Uh, won several open governorships, held, held a governorship in Kansas, which is an extremely Republican state. Uh, we did very, very well, all things considered. And um, given the mixed nature of the economy and the, the normal gravity of most midterms, this was far and away from a sure thing. And so, uh, and I want to name check one person who came in for criticism last time we spoke, Henry Queller, the conservative Dem in South Texas did hold his seat in this midterm election. And the person trying to primary him, even though I liked her very much, she almost certainly would not have. And uh, given how close the House of Representatives actually came down to, it was decisions like that that were relevant. 
So, uh, why do you think? Uh, why do you think this is happened? Because just from a historical sense, like Reagan got dumped like in eighty two. Yes. Uh, JFK suffered in sixty two. You know, although these, not much. He's a yeah. happy outlier because people were so grateful that of the absence of nuclear annihilation and the Cuban Missile Crisis combined with the very strong economy of the early 60s. And then uh, there's, there's also 66. Yes, 66 was an absolute bloodbath for Democrats. Turns out civil rights is not unpo- is not popular for large numbers of white <laughs> Americans. Uh, go figure. In, in, uh, in living memory, I guess, there's 94, which is oh, yeah. incredible. Yes. But if you actually compare this election to those uh, elections, and like I've been doing some polling for some other elections um, and we, like we're finding that incumbents are in a lot of trouble right now. Much of it is because of issues outside of their control, like the economy, cost of living, inflation, and all of those issues are alive in the American uh, election and the political scene. But it seems to not have generated any kind of like widespread rejection of the Democrats, which is really fascinating. Why do you think that happened? So with an important caveat that votes are still being counted and tabulated and the data for exactly who voted doesn't become available in all 50 states plus D.C. for another month or two, depending on where you are. So all of these are necessarily sort of imperfect uh, portrayals. One of the big things is that generally speaking, if you look at American political history, big political changes are rarely popular in the immediate term. And so whenever one party does big stuff, even if it is in the long run popular or deemed necessary or what have you, uh, in the short term, doing that stuff irritates enough voters, either because they were opposed to that legislation in the first place or because they didn't like the particular path or strategy that this that it took to get to this legislation. Because of that, voters tend to punish deviations from the status quo. This midterm was unusual in that, yes, the Democrats were given the fact that the Senate was tied and their House majority was very narrow, They and there was the existence of the Senate filibuster still, The Democrats were surprisingly legislatively productive uh, across a number of fronts, but none of them were huge with immediate impacts, and especially none of them compared to the Dobbs ruling on abortion. And so the biggest change in American life for most people to observe was carried out not by the Democrats at all, but by a Supreme Court that everybody associated with. Republican appointments and policy choices. And so voters were in the, in the unusual position of responding to Republican overreach while there was a Democratic trifecta in control of the federal government. And that is very unusual. So that was that was a big part of it. The other part was, of course, that the former president, Donald Trump, just refused to go away and insisted on making the full-on, full-throated rejection of the results of 2020 and even the embrace of the 
you know, the beer belly putsch of January 6th, uh, 2021, uh, uh, the embrace of that by so many Republican candidates meant that a number of, as far as we can tell, a number of voters who were not diehard Trump supporters really did distinguish between sort of generic Republican and, say, Carrie Lake, uh, Blake Masters, Herschel Walker, J.D. Vance, and, and other people. And so because of that, one of the things we saw is there was a rise in splitting of tickets. And so that was enough to, uh, between Dobbs and then the threats to democracy, that both kept Democratic turnout from collapsing in the same way that it did in 2010 and then 2014. In 2014, that was the lowest turnout in an American election of any kind since 1942. And the, the, the collapse was especially pronounced among the youth uh, and just Democratic constituencies. They just didn't show up. And like barely a third of the voters showed up at all. And those who showed up voted Republican. That didn't happen this year. The Republicans, as far as we can tell, did have a turnout advantage. Uh, the, the electorate was several points more Republican than it was in 2020. But the balance of these people, some of these people who did vote Republican, didn't vote straight ticket. And then independents who were so-so on Biden appear to have broken narrowly for the Democrats. And so that was enough to make the, the sort of generic ballot, so-called, which nobody, that doesn't mean anything legally, but the generic ballot is just if you add up how everybody voted in their local house race, you know, across all the all the, all the the districts, uh, who, who got more votes and by how many percentage points. And the Republicans, it looks like they're going to win the generic ballot still by uh, as the as the election nerds would say, it would be like an R plus three year, give or take. So by three points. And that's that's not bad. Uh, and if you'd have told most people last month that it's going to be an R plus three year, they probably would have assumed that meant that the House was going to be significantly more Republican than it's going to be. And that the Senate was more likely than not going to be at least narrowly Republican because of the, the biases of the just the way the states vote and everything else. And so voters distinguishing between types of candidates led to very uneven outcomes from state to state and race to race. And although, like I said, um, myself and I would say most Democrats are very pleased with how things turned out, this was not a, this was not a uniform election. So there's the overused descriptor of, oh, is this a wave year? And there's that really annoying question every seemingly American election now that we've had since, I don't know, at least 2010. Is this a wave? Is this a red wave? Is this a blue wave? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, there was no national wave. Instead, the Republicans did very well in a few places like Florida. Florida is no longer a swing state. Florida had a realigning election. They're very clearly going to be a Republican leaning state for the at least the near term. And then the Republicans did very well in New York uh, and pretty decently in Georgia outside of the Senate. And then they actually did reasonably well in California in a lot of the legislative races. 
not at the not at the statewide races. There's just too many Democrats and not enough Republicans. But at the legislative races, they more than held their own. Other states, Michigan, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Colorado, the Democrats had good to great years. And so it really depended on a number of more local factors. And one of those to tie back is in what way did the Dobbs decision affect local politics? And in states where abortion was not secure, where abortion rights were perceived as accurately under threat, and in states that were not otherwise heavily, heavily anti-abortion anyway, this tended to help the Democrats. So Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, for example, Minnesota, all of these states, a Republican victory would have had serious implications for abortion rights in those states, whereas a Democratic victory would have tangible benefits. New York state, abortion was not at risk. And so Democrats and independents and Republicans who are pro-choice but were unhappy with Andrew Cuomo or Joe Biden could, from their perspective, fairly safely cast a ballot for Republicans in New York and not have those kind of immediate consequences. So, yeah, just to bring it back then, so we we had a narrow um, majority in, in the House for the Republican uh, Party, for, and then in the Senate we had Democrats uh, retaining control, and then, as you've you've already mentioned, we had some um, changes on the sort of gubernatorial um, elections. So I think Arizona, Maryland, and Massachusetts um, went to Democrats, and Republicans flipped Nevada, and as you already said, held Texas and Florida. And Florida has very much switched from becoming a, a purple state to very much a red one. And probably one of the big stories of the night was that Ron DeSantis basically crushed his his um, Democratic opponent and essentially became the central Republican figure um, outside of Donald Trump. Uh, and then I, I think you've already mentioned that there's going to be a um, Georgia runoff because neither uh, neither um, candidate managed to reach the 50% mark that's required there. So that's obviously um, still still take place. So uh, just from, from you all, if you've all got a couple of minutes, just, just answer this one. I was just wondering, and we can start with you, Ian. What were your expectations heading into into the night? And then what, were, what was your reaction as it, as, it, as it actually played out? So I did. I was not expecting it to go as well as it did. And so I explicitly avoided watching <laughs> or any doing anything live. And so I woke up the next morning and a cousin of mine who lives in Kansas texted me to celebrating that his congresswoman Sharice Davis mm-hmm. had been reelected resoundingly and I was pleasantly surprised I knew she was going to be close and then he said and I said I hadn't looked I couldn't look and he said it was actually pretty good and that was when I you know opened up my phone <laughs> and saw like this beautiful Christmas morning style miracle um I it gets me very I it's not good for my, I do not find it a joyful experience to see large numbers of people voting Republican in the 21st century live. And so I just don't, I don't <laughs> partake, um, you know, uh, as much as I, and I, I, I wish that was ever since 2016 ruined it for me. Um, and so ever since then, there's just no fun. And I knew, I knew Florida was going to be a slaughter anyway. All mm-hmm. the early indicators were there. 
and Nevada was uh, was iffy. There's there's somebody who is he is absolutely the the guru, the master of Nevada politics. His name is John Ralston. His independent newspaper is called the uh, the the Nevada Independent, the Indy. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody should follow him. He has never been wrong at a race call beginning in 2010. He predicted the Lombardo winning the governorship for the Republicans while uh, Catherine Cortez Masto would narrowly hold the Senate. And he he got everything. He got everything right. He got controller right. He got everything right. And <laughs> he was seeing apparently a lot of Dems stuck their ballots in the drop boxes and in the mail on election day. And so they weren't sort of even recorded as being turned in. So it looked like Dems were collapsing on election day and the Republicans were all showing up. And so that knowledge way more than Florida spooked me and made me sort of, you know, watch nonsense television with my wife and and not pay attention to the news. Um, But my my head thought the dumb, that the Republicans were going to at least get 51 Senate seats mm-hmm. out of this, which is enough for them to hold the Senate through uh, the next cycle, too, because the Democrats have z- almost zero chance of picking anything up, uh, right. which we can get into. And then the House, I was expecting, oh, 15 or 20 Republican seat pickup easily. Mm-hmm. And I was expecting them to uh, I mean, Massachusetts and Maryland were, were were gimmies for the Democrats for reasons we can get into. But I was expecting the Republicans to win Wisconsin, uh, to win Arizona, to win Nevada, uh, have a good shot in Kansas. You know, I was expecting a lot of a lot of heartbreak. Um, Toby Vaughn, I don't know how how you guys took in the election. Obviously, over in the UK, um, I was similar to Ian. In fact, obviously, time difference uh, being a little bit of a factor there. But I, I went to bed and had no interest in, in staying up to watch it. And then woke up the, the next day and was pleasantly surprised that there wasn't as much red on on the walls I was expecting. I don't know from your perspectives what you thought going into it and how you reacted to the turnout. Well, you know how I reacted because I reacted at you guys. <laughs> um, the the night of, I was going to stay up and uh, do the live commentary on our Twitter feed, but after a couple hours, I was not in the mood. <laughs> um, mm. And seeing some kind of early results, I was just like, I can't do this again because I did it for twenty twenty, and it, I was just very stressed about it. So I went to bed eventually, and going into the election, I was really torn because ideologically I was like, God, I really hope the Democrats win. (laughs) I really hope that this is an easy election. When one of the questions is, does a uterus make you less of a person? You would really hope that the vast majority of people would say like, no, why would it make you less of a person? Um, So the next morning I was quite upset. Um, that it wasn't even more democratic, but I'm also very aware that I operate in, um, very liberal and leftist circles. So, and I'm also in the UK, I'm not really around many Americans anymore. So I know that I'm kind of out of touch with, um, people who I would normally in the U.S. be interacting with. 
who are of different opinions um, politically and whatever, just because of the virtue of where I lived and everything like that. So I really didn't know how it would go. I just really hoped that it would be very democratic. And the morning of the results, I was I was really bitter. I was really upset. Um, I know that it is good historically and contextually, but it's very upsetting that one of the parties was very aggressively saying, why do we need democracy? Why do people with uteruses need rights? And the Democrats were like, well, we don't really think those things. And it was, it just wasn't as, I was upset that it was a like 49 to 51 split for what was at stake in this election. Vaughn, With one a- thing I'll say, just in response to the, the Democrats campaigning, in fairness, uh, like, uh, I mean, I agree with you that I would have liked to see a, a route, you know, for, mm-hmm. for Team Blue. But the the ads and the tenor here uh, was, was pretty full-throated uh, advocacy for abortion and democracy. So the idea that the Democrats okay. did not pound that door, if anything, the a lot of the commentary from both Republicans and sort of smug centrist um, pundit types was that, oh, the Democrats, all they want to talk about is abortion and democracy. Mm-hmm. Don't they realize people also are struggling with inflation and crime and other things? And so, uh, and I, I was somewhat curious how that was going to play out, but it is absolutely not the case that the Democrats didn't run all the way through the tape on the twin message of those people are crazy and they're going to criminalize abortion and also they're crazy and they are going to undermine or demolish our democracy. That's really good to know because being in the UK, I don't have the, I mean, God bless, I don't have the constancy of like political ads and campaign ads that that you do in the state so I definitely and I was aware that I had a skewed kind of idea of how this election would go because I'm not there and I don't know exactly what everyone is being fed all the time and and those things so from my perspective here I was I was really nervous about it how how it would go but I was really hoping that we would choose democracy and rights Um, and I'm happy that we did enough to hold the senate and in the last week of kind of musing on this and tempering my own immediate anger and emotions <laughs> um a lot of soul searching in the last week i i'm extremely happy with how a lot of it went and i can see more clearly the there's rampant like voter suppression or attempts for voter suppression in a lot of areas um there's places where the dnc are not funneling money there are places yes. where the dnc were backing centrist moderates who are essentially like 2000s Republicans just in a blue tie when the vote was there for progressives and they just didn't run a progressive candidate and then lost. And like, I can see all of those structural things now that I really hope they learn lessons from this. Like my state, Pennsylvania, I was nervous (laughs) because like Doug Mastriano and Dr. Oz, are you fucking kidding me who are those who are these candidates and i was really nervous like josh shapiro is from my area he's one of 
the local politicians that I like grew up knowing. Um, he was our attorney general in in my county, and he was just always around at all of the events. Like I really, I know Josh Shapiro, and I was like, that man could absolutely be governor. And I fully believe, maybe because of that connection that I've seen him for twenty some years, um, I believe that he could be president one day. I, I he's really great. Think he's and fucking the, amazing. Yeah, I love oh. Josh Shapiro. Sorry. We should give a shout out to the Pennsylvania Democratic Party yes. has been killing it. Yes, they did. And something that doesn't get talked about enough, people love to bash political parties. Do you know who political parties are? Your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Okay. The people who uh, worked their asses off in the state, registering voters, canvassing, recruiting and uh, supporting good candidates. That stuff takes time. Yeah. And Florida is a great negative example of what happens when a state party is not good at those things and is not well run. There are millions of Democrats in Florida, and they have managed to piss away so many competitive races over the years. And the Republican Party in Florida is also very well run, credit where it's due. Okay, But uh, Pennsylvania, very competitive state, the Democrats have recruited good candidates who win in blowout margins, even in years like 2014, when we took back the governorship from what's his face, Tom Barrett. Um, so, yeah, the, the whole Pennsylvania Democratic Party should take a bow, as yeah. well as the Michigan Democratic Party. And there's other states. Too. Montana is phenomenal. Uh, Alaska, uh, others. So in in terms of it's worth distinguishing there are there's not only a national party which does certain wise things and certain foolish things but then there's the state parties and they have a lot of control over picking candidates and setting goals and all the rest and they matter a lot yeah i i fully agree and i think i think pennsylvania really nailed it because like john fetterman won and then josh shapiro um and austin davis they're the governor and lieutenant governor Mm -hmm. elect um and the like those are all the like hot headline races but the the state legislature also they pulled a margin in the the state legislature and that's the first time in 12 years that that's happened in pennsylvania and i do think that that's probably again as a an offshoot of dobbs specifically the the pennsylvania legislature tried to slip through an 11th hour bill a couple months ago saying that we should get rid of abortion rights in Pennsylvania. And um, Tom Wolf, our current governor, was like, absolutely fucking not. And he made it very well known that they tried to do this covertly, that the Republican held legislature really tried to screw over Pennsylvanians. It would have come to a vote and uh, been a ballot measure, but they they really pushed to this. And I think that that messaging and the the organization of the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania really, really did so extremely well. Um, we also have like a an even split, which makes sense almost even. Um, it makes sense for the demographics and counties in Pennsylvania that we have nine Democratic House representatives now and eight Republican um, yeah. in the in the House of Representatives. So, like. It, it makes sense for the demographics, but they absolutely like, as far as I'm concerned and viewing the Pennsylvania races, they landslided it. They did so, so well 
It did. Um, and I'm extremely proud to be a Pennsylvanian right now because if it was fucking Mastriano or Dr. Goddamn Oz, I would be like, no, actually I'm from Jersey. Like, well, those we should be clear, those weren't even close. Um, and that was even close. No, and even even Fetterman, who it was a closer race than Shapiro, and partly I don't even know if it's fair to compare. I mean, I know Shapiro, he won more votes than Biden in 2020. Uh, he's a he's a dynamo, but it's also I mean Mastriano was just certifiable, and so like comparing the electoral performances of Shapiro and Fetterman without taking into account that Shapiro was running against a madman that like Selena Zito who pretends to be a you know a reporter who just writes op ads where she'll interview one person who agrees with her, and it's always some person who is a Republican but somehow is selena zito is pretending this person is a swing voter uh she just was rampantly editorializing against doug mastriano like the entire race even though she's always a republican um like anyway there's a lot of people who didn't vote for him for very obvious and good reasons so like there there's that but even fetterman it wasn't even close uh he won i think he had the except for bob bob casey who's some sort of electoral god uh, yeah. living, floating above mere mortals. Uh, Fetterman, Fetterman did better than like all the other Democratic candidates and swing seats. Even our incumbents who are supposed to have advantages. So like credit where it's due. He mm-hmm. campaigned everywhere and did well. Um, and he's, he's so extremely progressive. Like he didn't yeah. shy away from any of the, like Dr. Oz was like, oh, he's friends with Bernie. And Fetterman was like, yeah, what of it? Like that's, those are my politics. We should get rid of student loan debt. We should have health care. People with uteruses should be able to get medical care for their uteruses without talking to Dr. Oz first. Like it's he was yeah. just so forward in his progressiveness and people showed out for it. And it's that's a lesson that I really hope the Democrats take is that people do want the actual voters want progressive policies and they the state parties and the DNC, I think, would do really well to consider that when they're allotting money to these campaigns in the next elections. I would okay. caveat they want these policies. They don't always want them framed as extreme or progressive. Yeah. And that I one of the things that. one of the things that Fetterman did, as good politicians do, is he didn't frame it as I'm here to lead our revolution, but rather you uh, he said, you know, you do most of your shopping at the Dollar General store because you're you're living pretty close to the line and you deserve a fair wage and you deserve you deserve a break. You deserve somebody who's got your back. You know, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be left behind. And that is a kind of a message that is broadly popular and doesn't need to be framed as progressive. And I think this is both semantic, but I think important. Yeah, no, uh, I agree in terms with that. of pitching. I think uh, like uh, in aesthetic terms as well, like yeah. Fetterman does look like a regular person as well. I think it's, uh, that might help I'll him. Be a giant. Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 He's, he's a giant. But uh, oh, as, Toby, as opposed to. Oh, sorry, I was just going to go ahead. I was going to bring up something that you probably would be good to speak for or to about. Uh, in response to a point that Vaughn raised, but please finish praising our mountain of a man who's now no, representing. No, he, he, no, he's, he's great. Um, but yeah, and different from the sort of professional managerial um, 
presentations that that politicians in the Democratic Party have been been putting on as well. So it's not necessarily that he it it seems radical, but he does. He is a little bit different because he does seem ordinary. He's pivoting in a different way, I think. Identity politics is alive and well for all uh, all genders, races and creeds. Uh, You know, that stuff matters. I mean, you look at John Tester the Montana senator who keeps getting reelected for the Democrats. I think his entire wardrobe costs about $8. He has a flat top haircut and he had his left hand. uh, He's lost several fingers in a meat processing accident, like on his ranch. And he votes like a Berkeley liberal on almost all issues. And yet his voters keep reelecting him in part because he walks and talks like them, you know. Uh, that that stuff matters. And yes, it's of course, partially as he's a white dude, but it's also a lot more than that too. So something Vaughn criticized, and it's, it's fair, but I think we should distinguish between sort of strategy and tactics and about where the Democrats spent money and support and where they didn't. And Toby, I think, you know, more of this than, than any of us, you know, especially more locally on your side, but I think it's fair to to point out that there's always going to be some amount of Monday morning quarterbacking because nobody like something that the Democrats were responding to that turned out to be wrong is the same that the Republicans were wrong about in 2020. And by that, I mean the internal polls for Democrats in a bunch of places weren't that good. And so the Democrats were responding. They were trying to play defense and avoid a wipeout. And that shaped where they sent money to certain races. And they were doing some triaging. And some of that ended up proving to be a miscalculation. So the there were three close races in Arizona for the House that they were all decided by like under 20,000 votes or something or something really small. And we spent very little money on them in the last month of the campaign because they were written off as kind of forgone. Uh, And there were a few in California that way, too. But the Republicans did this the same thing in 2020, where they thought that they were headed for a a real resounding defeat. And they picked up 13 seats in the House and their polls had been wrong, too. And so uh, I, I think that judgment and criticism is always warranted. But in in fairness, if nobody else fully was sure what was going to happen, either uh, sort of pinning blame on you know, the DNC or somebody writ large for like hanging people out to dry is sometimes, again, just that like Monday morning quarterbacking. And we hope, you know, hopefully we do better. But I think that's sort of those tactical missteps might be of a sort of different order than, you know, choosing to completely abandon an important issue or constituency or something else. But maybe, uh, Toby, you, you know, work in polling and you you have a lot more political insider knowledge than than any of us so i'm, I'm sure you have thoughts on this i think it's, it's it's interesting because uh the republicans were plus three in the generic ballot and i think that the republicans actually probably have done some of what you've said, said as well like ran up uh votes in places where they didn't necessarily need them tactically but what what's what's quite interesting is you compare the internal polls of democrats have as you say they had to the actual polling for the election like i have a difference of opinion to b- both of you guys because i feel like 
I didn't think this the the, the Democrats were going to lose the Senate. I I looked at a number of these races uh, within margin of error: Nevada, Wisconsin, uh, New Hampshire. I I thought it was either going to be that the Republicans had fifty one, or the Democrats had fifty one. I didn't think they were going to lose the Senate. There's more Republican seats. I think were up. Uh, in, in in this cycle, and it, it, which is going to make it difficult for the Democrats in, in, in the next one, uh, most definitely. But I didn't. I actually didn't think they were going to lose the Senate. Thirty percent of the Republican candidates were talking about January sixth uh, in in like in positive ways. They were saying that the election was stolen. There was a, a lot of really poor candidates. I definitely felt that the Democrats were going to lose the House. I think the polling. Um, was it you know along those lines but in the senate i did i thought there were so many races within margin of, of error and uh, i'm not at all surprised actually at the at what what happened to, in in the senate and i think it's because the the republicans didn't make this a race enough about the vulnerabilities that the democrats and joe biden have on on the cost of living on the economy I think they made too much about crime. I don't think that that issue has that much traction with the with the population, especially because crime is very, very different in very different areas. I know they've tried to um, nationalize a lot of like crime stories, like things right. like that will happen in Wisconsin. You know, you'll see it wherever you are, and you feel like that's happening in your neighborhood. But it works yeah. locally. But you're right, not nationally. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't. I I actually did not think that the Democrats. Uh, I, I thought there was a possibility of them losing the Senate by one, but not by much. I didn't. I didn't really think this. The, the I thought that the Senate was possible for them to hold. Uh, I'm not surprised by that uh, situation, but I, but I did think they were going to lose the House. So, um, Toby, we, we've kind of talked extensively on this podcast so far about our reactions to the, to how things played out. How disappointed were you when Mitch McConnell called and, and said the Republicans didn't win the House? Um, and ha- has has that been felt in your back pocket when you didn't get the fees you were expecting? <laughs> I've never worked in an American politics before. from a distance, right? But yeah, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I I feel like I was I was unsurprised by what happened. Uh, a lot of people have blamed McConnell's uh, financing of. Uh, the elections, they, they said that McConnell's really been putting a lot of money into uh, races that will see him keeping control of the Senate as opposed to narrow races where the Republicans uh, could, could win. But I, I, I think McConnell's um, reflection on the election is is my own and probably shared across the board here. Like it's, they, they had a lot of really bad candidates and hmm. they they just need to change that. They don't even need to. And change those this. weren't his fault. Like he explicitly didn't want those clowns to get the nomination. Yeah, he's not financing those. those no, those uh, he also was playing. He was very clear. He wanted to get to 51 and everything else was gravy, but he wanted to guarantee 51, which is why they blew so much money in Ohio, because Ohio, if you're a Republican, and it in this in this day and age, Ohio needs to be a layup. And if you if you fail in Ohio, that is that is a fireable offense. And he because J.D. Vance was such a pud and was so unpopular, 
they needed to spend, and Tim Ryan was a good candidate, they needed to spend some ungodly amount of money to to make that layup. And uh, but he but he kept spending money on it instead of saying it'll probably be fine. He wouldn't take it for granted. And I I thought that was smart. Uh, you know, races like that, races like North Carolina that also shouldn't be that difficult for them in a in a midterm election with a Democrat in the White House. He he was playing very conservatively, sort of we are not going to fail any any gimmies and then we'll build out from there. Yeah, so, so one one of the things I actually wanted to talk about, um, Ian, just just uh, with you here was from your own perspective and and you know a New Englander and having a podcast um, about about Maine, has there been any reaction from your your own areas as to how things played out? And it was was there any specific news stories that maybe didn't break nationally that were, were of particular importance? So yeah, there's a couple of there's a couple of New England ramifications here. So first mm-hmm. of all. The Republicans were remain shut out of the New England House delegation. There are no Republicans representing a congressional seat once again. And that was the case last year, too, or last cycle as well. Massachusetts was home to one of the these holdout liberal Republicans. Massachusetts has had for a very long time. Massachusetts has been governed by moderate-ish or liberal-ish Republicans, far more than Democrats since the, oh, I want to say late 1980s, early 1990s. And even though the Massachusetts legislature has been overwhelmingly Democratic, it has it's ideologically very diverse. And so there were a lot of voters and powerful interests that be that were happier having a kind of liberal Republican governor uh, presiding over a Democratic legislature, and that would prevent the true progressive left from wielding too much power. And Charlie Baker was a wildly popular liberal Republican, and he said, I am a Republican, but I I don't like Trump, and I'm a different kind of Republican, and I'm trying to keep that brand going. And he could not win he knew he wouldn't get renominated this year because the Massachusetts Republican Party is both small and now very Trumpy. And so they decided to throw that away and nominate a Trumpist Republican for governor. And he got blown out. And so that might be the end of an era for the Massachusetts Republican Party, uh, which had previously been able to at least uh, at the executive level have some sort of influence. Uh, Rhode Island as well. Rhode Island has a lot of Democrats and a lot of independents and not very many Republicans, but moderate Republicans were able to hold, serve to some degree. And we've had at least one statewide office held by a Republican for virtually our our entire state's history. We had a clean sweep this election and the Republicans are not represented at all at the statewide level. And same thing. And so that was, I think that was a important marker uh, in terms of the, the, the changes in the state's partisanship. Uh, something else I'm thinking about the other New England states uh, that, that gets commented on or not. New Hampshire, we're really seeing the trends in the Republican Party. So it's becoming a party far more popular among 
uh, white voters without a college degree, as well as white voters who are more likely to be churchgoers. New Hampshire is not a state with large numbers of either of those people. And so as a result, the Trumpified Republican Party is really taking a beating there. And so we're seeing uh, the Republicans, again, kind of throw away competitive races in a way that until recently they just were not doing. And yeah, I'm trying to think if there was, so that's the sort of big one. I think we'll see, uh, yeah, it's, New England is fascinating just because the states are can, are very different in the sense that both Rhode Island and Massachusetts have these extremely enormous Democratic parties that contain multitudes at the state level, and they control almost all the houses, the seats in the state legislature, but a number of the incumbents are conservadems who in other states would be Republicans but they are Democrats in, in where they live. Whereas, and you have to actually look under the hood to see like, who am I voting for when I vote for this Democrat? Whereas in Connecticut, there is a fully robust, healthy Republican party, and then a, a normal Democratic party that still wins the state, but by more narrow majorities. And I'm not 100% sure why those different states took those paths. But just, just actually to stop on, on, on Connecticut, like um, in presidential elections quite recently, the Connecticut has gone Republican, hasn't it? Uh, at which level? The, the Republicans never actually took over. They came close to taking over the state legislature. They did not. Uh, the last time they had the governorship was 2010. And then in the election of 2010, a Democrat narrowly won. And then the Dems narrowly won in 14 and then narrowly won in 18. And then in 2022 was finally like a, a blowout. Uh, right. Okay. So before we get into um, battle, which is a subject I want to cover, is there anything else anyone wants to, to, to bring up? Any other subjects? Yeah. Um, I want to start with the some of the ballot measures that uh, were, were voted on um, within states. So we saw five ballot measures on abortion that all um passed to keep or to to either maintain or establish rights to abortion um in five states those were clean margins uh, for most of them but then there was also the five states who voted on uh whether to make slavery illegal in 2022 and it was a very specific kind of slavery it was indentured servitude for a prison inmates um and those states were tennessee alabama louisiana oregon and vermont and four of them voted to get rid of slavery to make it illegal uh, and louisiana voted to keep it and i just i want to bring that one up because uh, in a lot of the reactions to it, and especially on Twitter, like it didn't help that there was just a a image that was going around that said like slavery illegal 2022. Um, but a lot of people have been dunking on it, like oh these states had to had to vote to get rid of slavery. It's 2022. Why isn't it already illegal? But most states haven't voted on that yet. Like it's it's quite a good thing that those five actually put it on a ballot measure and 
are working towards making slavery in prisons, which is very much um, part of the U.S. economy, a massive part of the U.S. economy, and a lot of the manufacturing in the U.S. Um, is done is is processed through prisons. And um, it's constitutional because the Thirteenth Amendment says no slavery unless you committed a crime. Yeah, so so it's it's quite a a, a massive thing for these states to actually put on ballot measures, and it's even more of a. <laughs> kind of brilliant thing to do because like California is our our liberal state right very frequently they're going democratic and we think of California as this liberal place but they haven't voted to make it unconstitutional in their in their state and California routinely is using prison labor to fight wildfires and that's something that's a criticism we hear a lot when there are wildfires, but then it kind of goes away. So I think like, yes, it's wild that we have to vote on this in 2022, but those five states and especially being two southern ones, Tennessee and Alabama, voted to get rid of slavery. It's really an iconic thing um, that really deserves a lot more praise than the kind of dunking that it has been getting online. Agreed. I had something good to say about the election. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> if I may say another good news, mm-hmm. and that is that overwhelmingly defeated candidates, especially Republican ones, conceded and did not cry fraud with yes. the major exception. Even Doug Mastriano did with yeah. the exception of Carrie Lake. And so... This is yes, this is this is very much congratulating your five-year-old for being toilet trained level <laughs> of, of success. But nevertheless, I think it's important for several reasons. One is it's good because uh, most Republicans at the very least, whether they believe it or not, they are convinced that be not eroding democratic norms is politically good for them. And so like I'm, I'm a cynic about human motivations. And so I think it's important to construct systems that reward non-toxic behavior and punish undemocratic behavior because there's plenty of people who are dirtbags and we at least want to make it so that they behave reasonably, ethically, just for self-interested reasons. But anyway, also it shows how much of the absolute nonsense and insanity from 2020 was a result of uh, that fucking guy. <laughs> and uh, yes, it's overly simplistic. A lot of those orange man bad takes from the uh, the MSNBC watching moms can be oversimplistic and overbearing, but it's a- almost unsettling how much of a point they had in the sense of without him with his bullshit megaphone, there was way these people were less inclined to do so. And I should add in 2020, what didn't get as much attention is after Trump started crying fraud, it just became the trendy thing to do. And Republican candidates in races that nobody, everybody knew they weren't going to win. Like the Republican candidate for the house representing like Baltimore, Maryland, which like, you know, they get like 15% of the vote in Baltimore on a good year. They were crying fraud, you know, like that kind of nonsense. And so to see that 
uh, punished at the polls, which is very much it was, and to see people responding to that, even the mutants like Blake Masters, that is just unambiguously good for democracy. And especially since like, for all of our sins, we are a two-party system, and it is just not feasible over the long haul to have the only solution for keeping democracy be one side needs to just keep winning all the elections everywhere because the other side is crazy. Like that's yeah. just not sustainable. And so the, the evidence is, and this is where with the, the narrow vote, there seems to be the evidence that there were enough discerning voters willing to participate in a sort of low level popular front, if you will, against truly crazy Republicans while selectively not punishing Republicans like Stephanie Yee, the candidate for treasurer in Arizona, who won in a very, she won very comfortably. And she's by all accounts, just like a normal, competent public servant who happens to be a Republican. Um, and so people were willing to distinguish that and, and therefore reward it. And I think that is all to the good. And it's yes. really, it's really amazing, actually, this ticket splitting thing, because yes. the country's supposed to be so, so polarized. It made me feel like it was like 1960 or something. It's really <laughs> and for the time being, it's good because it also implies people are paying attention. And that's good. And we can we can all dunk on the sort of um, shallow praise of bipartisanship by people who, you know, yay, isn't it great they're voting together to declare war or, you know, something like that. But like not that kind, but the smart <laughs> kind of ticket splitting of, oh, yeah. You know, I'm a Republican, but I don't like crazies. And oh, I'm a Democrat, but like that person's a tanky. And I'm I'm actually not going to support them for this race. I'm going to sit this one out or whatever for this local thing. Like I that's think important. you said um, discerning. I think that's a really good word. Yeah. The people can really look at the nuances and actually make those kinds of decisions. It's actually, I think, is a really good thing. Uh, another thing you said about um, being a cynic about human behavior. I agree with you. I think the only reason me and Simon don't commit crimes is because we're incentivized not to. So I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is, is beneficial for democracy, certainly. That's true. Also, I was going to make a comment, Toby, that the reason you think it's 1960 is for other reasons. That's because we're just continuously thinking about Richard Nixon. But um, uh, yeah, that, that, of course. Um, before we get into uh, the last couple of things I want to talk about, which was, was Beto and then DeSantis and, and, and Trump, um, Ian, is, is there any sort of takeaways that we have thus far on how the demographics have broke down? I know there was a lot of talk before, and I think some of it afterwards, about, about the Republicans making gains amongst working class, both, both white and I think Hispanic, and Democrats being sort of um, more popular among affluent and, and college-educated whites. Do we, do we have any of that information yet? There's a few tentatively. Uh, one is that the, well, in terms of turnout, the youth turnout tentatively uh, is it was not as high as in 2018. So calling it a youth surge is, is very much um, wishful, wishful thinking by people who are insistent that the democratic success was strictly due to turnout rather than persuasion. The evidence is instead that Democrats, yes, their base didn't collapse, but that Democrats did a good job persuading independents, soft Republicans, uh, and and not hard partisans to vote for them in key races. Um, so independence broke for Democrats, which is almost unheard of in a midterm like this. Uh, secondly, the 
hopefully this will finally put a stake in the habit of talking about a Hispanic vote monolithically, which Mm. was always foolish. Mm -hmm. Uh, This just showed that you really can't do that. It depends on states, right? But what we're seeing is that uh, the best evidence we have is that the, the, the Hispanic or Latino vote, that is that the Republicans are winning with, is overwhelmingly conservative. And what happened was, is that for a while, conservative Latinos were more likely to vote Democratic, far more likely to vote Democratic than self-identified conservatives who are white. Um, And at levels not as high as the level of Black conservatives who vote Democratic, but high enough. And so what we're seeing is ideological sorting, as well as some degree of diploma divide playing out among uh, non-white groups that has already been playing out among uh, among white voters. Uh, same with uh, Asians, the, the Asians who are in some states like New York, Asians broke very hard for Lee Zeldin in the, in the gubernatorial race, making it by New York standards quite close. Uh, I think the Democrat, uh, Kathy Hochul won re-election by like five points or something like that, which in New York is really close. The that again, there were some local issues, but I think another early indicator is that once again, like with Latinos, uh, Asian voters who are conservative are voting Republican now in the same way that like white voters are. So we're seeing an element of racial depolarization. And there are, of course, some Republicans who are saying, well, this just really means that the Latino shift is just going to keep galloping rightward, la, 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 la. Uh, I don't, I think that that is also just, you know, riding the hopium too hard uh, in the same way that Democrats used to assume that Latino voters would follow the path of African-American voters and vote democratically in lockstep for sort of affinity reasons and solidarity reasons. And that has not happened. Uh, And then finally, I think the biggest divide and break we saw is once again, and this is where Dobbs really comes in, single women, 30 years old and under, have broken really hard for Democrats. And among the youngest voters, uh, the usual caveats of race uh, and education level have applied in terms of shaping partisanship, but young men uh, under the age of 30 are white Democrats under the age of 30 who are men are about 50-50, which is still more liberal than any other white male demographic. But the real cause of Gen Z's uh, leftward march has been women and especially single women. And they broke Democratic by some huge margin of like 39 points or something like that. Uh, that was just not mirrored in any other demographic at all. Single women under 30 are Democratic at a level that no other demographic is either Democrat or Republican. And this is encouraging for Democrats because most voter behavior kind of gets locked in where most people's preferences are set by the time they're about 35 or so. Of course, some people change. I don't need, you know, there's always individuals, right? But by and large, as sort of demographic cohorts tend to uh, be influenced by their youthful experiences. And so I think those are the three big takeaways in terms of notable demographic uh, shifts or, or, or sort of stand paths. Otherwise, white voters without a college degree and Latinos outside of Florida didn't really change much. 
as a as a group in most other states. It was fairly uh, there, there wasn't like a continued gallop to the right from 2020 among those two groups uh, in the way that there have been in some other cycles. And that was also key to Democrats not losing more. Interesting. Uh, yes, you, you wonder how this is going to um, continue for, for, for future elections, but I guess that's something we'll just need to keep a keep an eye on. A, a, a... I just wanted to ask, is the, the black vote um, that's shifting Republican, is, is, there, is it just incidental? Is it like... Um, you know, 87% Democrat, or was right. it like by like any interesting amount among like say young black men without a college degree or something like that? Uh, so there's, I mean, there was a minor, so there is, there's a gender divide in all races for voting mm-hmm. uh, and African-Americans are no exception. And, and that's the other thing we've been seeing, by the way, the Latino vote uh, far and away, men are more likely to vote Republican than women. Uh, and with, uh, with, uh, with black voters, the gender gap, I believe, is smaller than any other uh, demographic that I'm aware of. And black men are only, you know, ironic quotation marks, voting Democrat. You know, Democrats are only winning black men with like 80 percent of their votes or something, <laughs> whereas black women, it's like 90 percent or something like that. Uh, I think we're also seeing a very slow, a slower move of black conservatives to the Republican Party in some places and especially in localized races i think they're they're willing to uh they're willing to cross party lines or or split their ticket more uh and that's been the case i think for democrats the any any heartbreak they had uh due to underperformance with black voters was i think less in most cases less about ticket splitting except in georgia where i believe brian kemp did measurably better especially among black men than stacy abrams uh, than normal uh, republicans have a right to expect uh partly because he was just honestly a popular incumbent and even though georgia is a closely divided state he did some popular stuff uh among most voters and incumbent governors usually win re-election so but uh there's been some minor again ideological sorting among black voters too and it's been slower but it's still happening. And in and terms so the, of this uh, realignment, it's mm-hmm. because you, you describe these people as conservatives, is it yes. like they tick in terms of their issues, conservative yes. issues yes. when they're polled? OK, nice. No, and so that's really- this is this is the reason why the big reason why the Democratic Party is so ideologically heterox is is because of, of reasons like that, where in pr- black voters, as well as uh, to a still some degree, Latino voters and and Asians, uh, and to a far lesser extent among white voters, self-identified conservatives and moderates, especially among Black voters and Latino voters, are have been willing to vote Democrat for a very long time, and so this means that so paradoxically, the average the median Black voter is more liberal than the median white voter, but the median white Democrat is more liberal than the median black Democrat because uh, there's a lot of black voters who are not liberal who nevertheless vote Democrat. Whereas most white voters who are conservative, almost all white voters who are conservative and a number who are moderate vote Republican. Hmm. So that, yeah, that color is the nature of the democratic coalition and has always been a big reason why People like Bernie Sanders who want to make it a much more ideologically driven 
party, more mirroring the Republican Party, which is very much a, at this point now, the electoral arm of the conservative movement, such as it is, the Democrats just aren't because there's a lot of Democrats who aren't liberals. So we're at the hour mark now. Um, there were just like a couple of things I wanted to touch on before, before we close up. One was that uh, Beto O'Rourke um, lost his uh, campaign to become governor of Texas. Um, he's a bit of a sort of favourite of, of the podcast, uh, partly because we, we like the idea of a progressive trying to make strides in Texas, and part because he's a little bit of a sort of easy punching bag because he keeps on taking on these these big um, races and then then losing sadly um what are your thoughts on how texas is voting and how, how it's you know are we getting closer to a purple texas or is beto a, a key part of that do, do, does beto have a career outside of texas if, if he wants what what are your thoughts on on where beto and texas stand in, in general so I was not surprised or particularly dismayed by Beto's performance. And yeah, I think a lot time, of people saw that coming, the, the big loss. Yeah. And there's a couple reasons for it completely outside of, of Beto himself. So it's easy to it, it's easy to forget that. So when Beto almost won that Senate seat against Ted Cruz in 2018, the gubernatorial race was not competitive. And the Republicans won that in a walk. And one of the big reasons is that for, well, for a variety of reasons, when states switch partisanship, they tend to start at the top of the ticket and work their way down is how it has historically been. And so, uh, you know, voting for president, voting for these federal races, you know, the Senate and whatnot. And then there tends to be a good degree of what, especially the folks at the, uh, the great electoral a site split ticket referred to as down ballot lag, where voters are much more slow to abandon their partisan affiliations with sort of local politicians than they are at the top of the ticket. And so this is why we will see there's a lot of Trump voter. There's some, some Trump voters and other types like in Pennsylvania who are willing to vote for uh, Democrats in like the Appalachians and Western Pennsylvania. And likewise, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania in the Philly suburbs, there were a lot of legacy moderate Republicans at the local level. And there's mm -hmm. a few left, but this this kind of snuffed them out. Whereas at the presidential level, a lot of these voters were voting respectively, you know, Republican or Democrat for several cycles. Texas is probably going to follow a similar path uh, where voters are more willing to distinguish at local levels. So Beto's defeat this year is not a knock on him. The good thing I think that he's done for the state is that even losing races, if they lose by closer than usual, they have coattails. Beto did that in 2018 by campaigning everywhere in Texas and by doing the hard work of starting to build state party machinery and, hmm. and turnout stuff. Beto makes it possible for Democrats to be more competitive in future election cycles. And on his coattails, the Dems swept into office in a lot of local races in Houston, uh, Greater Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, all those competitive suburbs around there. And they did it again this year, too, because he ran a viable campaign. Texas is an extremely 
uh, big, it's like five states sewn together. And so it's got extremely, it's expensive to campaign in. It has a lot of different media markets. And the Democrats, quite frankly, are going to have their work cut out for them rebuilding their party infrastructure. And it's not going to happen in one cycle. And it's hard work. And usually the first couple of times you try, you lose. And nobody wants to do that. It's hard to run even a competitive race. It's even harder to run a race that you're probably going to lose in. And so my only beef with Beto was when he did his vanity run for president in 2020. Um, but in 18 and 22, he was doing the Lord's work of campaigning in this uphill struggle, building infrastructure. And Democrat Texas has one of the lowest voter participation rates in the country. It also... A lot of the Latinos in Texas are conservative. Uh, there's a lot of just conservatives and moderates living in Texas. For the Democrats to be competitive, it's going to be work. It's going to cost money. It's going to take time. And he he's done a good job uh, sh showing up. And that's really important. And so I think that's been really vital. If Texas, I think it's going to continue getting more competitive. I think one, one of the things that people don't appreciate about its size and what have you is that what's really holding the Republicans up in Texas is the strength of East Texas. East Texas is uh, densely populated. It is the part of the state that's more well-watered because it's east of the uh, 100th parallel. I believe that's the parallel. It is culturally and climatologically and all the rest and demographically similar to Louisiana and the Deep South, and white voters there vote accordingly, and there's a lot of them. And so the Republicans are going to remain competitive in Texas, mostly on the strength of East Texas, and then any extra benefits that they can get uh, by convincing Rio Grande Valley sort of conservative Tejanos to switch parties, which they did. Trump did some of that in 2020, uh, but that there's not tons of those people. So I think East Texas is going to be their sort of base for a long time. Uh, it, it depends on who keeps moving to Texas. A lot of these people moving to Texas for work are not conservatives and they're willing to vote Democrat. And that's why Austin and Santa, you know, and, and those cities are getting more and more democratic and more competitive uh, in their suburbs. So I, I don't think it's going to be a silver bullet, but I think it's going to be like Texas. We will probably, we will win the governorship in in maybe the next wave year if there's a unpopular republican president in 2026 maybe that'll be the year uh or in an unpopular republican pre the next time there's a very unpopular republican president and we manage to get a good candidate that's probably the year that we have a real shot at doing it uh even more so in georgia but texas uh texas down the down the road as well i know just just for just for Vaughn, of course, we know the last presidential um, candidate from from the Democratic Party to to win Texas, and that was, of course, Jimmy Carter, your, your boy, Vaughn. My boy. Your boy. I, I want to say something about Beto real quick. Um, I agree with a, a lot of what you said, Ian, and I would... Beto, I really like Beto, so I'm going to defend him a little bit. Um, I think that, uh... he's doing, as you said, the Lord's work here. <laughs> Like the, I I think a lot of what can be boiled down to of like if you're gonna say something about Beto is that he is showing that there are Democrats in Texas, 
And I think on a national level and international, a lot of people think Texas and think it's just Republicans. Um, and I think that it was a bit of a vanity run for president in 2020, but he never, I, I personally think that he never expected to win, similarly to how I don't think he expected to win this governor's race. Um, no. maybe there was a small hope. I mean, I had a very small hope that like maybe he could do it, but really thinking rationally about it, there was no way he was going to win. Um, I thought maybe uh, the power, I mean, the, the absolute disaster of the Texas power grid, I thought maybe yeah, had that happened somehow a lot closer to this election, I think that might've been more competitive. And uh, tragically Uvalde, like you, you would have thought like, hopefully this could, could have helped. Um, there are a lot of things that have gone really fucking wrong in Texas and like, but structurally, as you say, the party isn't there. The Democratic Party, no. like infrastructure is not there. And he's been working towards building it for a long time. He was a representative yes. years ago, and then he didn't run again so that he could run against Cruz and in 2018. And he came so close, like a 2.6% margin yep. in that election. That's unheard of for a Democrat in Texas. So I really think that his run in 2020 was a reminder, both for people in Texas and also nationally, that there are Democrats in Texas, but they're either being suppressed or they're complacent or what have you. Um, and I, I think that a lot of his campaigning is just for that like constant reminder of like, do not let Texas just fall to the wayside like we still need democratic support and infrastructure we need to rally the party there and and i really i think uh, there are many candidates i mean how many were there like 28 democrats well, we or gotta be in fairness vaughn there was another texas candidate there are those like identical twins um julian and i forgot his brother oh, yeah uh and i'm yeah, i'm embarrassed i can't remember his last name but Casper. so what the Castros? Yeah, the Castros. Thank you. Um, and one of them is mayor of San Antonio. One is a congressperson. So in fairness, I think uh, no disrespect to Beto, but like they the, the one of the Castros who was running for for president that cycle, I believe he was doing better and was more competitive than Beto. And he had more experience. Um, and so, like, if we're going to, like, give credit for, like, Texas Democrats showing up. I don't think it's fair to only restrict it to Beto. I, I agree with that. I definitely agree. Um, I think the more, the better, because yeah. on a national scale, we need a reminder that we shouldn't leave Texas behind because you constantly have people, especially on Twitter, just passively saying like, oh, like, just leave, like, put the border around the Texas uh, yeah. date lines instead of at the South and just let them be alone. But like, there are fucking, as we saw, millions of of Democrats there who don't yes. like the Republican government that they have. So I, I think like just the national attention that there are viable Democratic candidates that people like in Texas and nationally, I think I think he's doing a really good job of keeping that reminder going and helping people in Texas realize that if they do get involved with a democratic party, they could eventually win. Cause I think there's a lot yes. of kind of doom there of like, 
why would we even work for, as you said earlier, like the party is made up of your neighbors and showing up and campaigning and working and uh, door to door, all of that. Like it takes people. And if there's absolutely no hope for those people or a candidate with national name recognition that they can like rally behind, I I think it's really, that's, that seems like a lost cause kind of thing. So I, I think even his, his 2020 run, this run in 2018, he definitely had a chance against Cruz. Yes. But I think in the next race, like it's easy to say like, oh, Beto's just a loser. He loses all the time. But I, I think what he's doing is really quite brilliant. And even if he doesn't win, I think he's really setting up a great chance for Democrats, as as you said, in Texas in the future. I think if he runs against Cruz again, I think he would win. No, I don't. I think it's Ooh. done. When you've had three statewide races that's kind of the it's an unwritten law but it's like pretty clear uh you're venturing into perennial candidate territory there um beto's gonna need to actually like hold a job first before he (laughs) seriously like we we said this earlier that that if biden gave him in our group chat if biden gave him like a cabinet position if he mayor peated beto i think he would do a lot better yeah can we, I know I was against Monday morning quarterbacking, but the one decision that pissed me off to no end, um, and I hope we don't do again, is the DNC's and everybody else's uh, willingness to just um, lavish the two Florida statewide candidates with unlimited money, Charlie Crist and Val Demings. And Val yes. Demings, I like Val Demings. There was no way in hell she was going to win that race. And we blew how much out of state money on her race um like i don't like marco rubio either but there was no way we were going to beat him if we would have spent that money on like literally any other race in the entire country it would have been money well spent i am furious that That's- christ and demings got all the funding that they did and like we shouldn't abandon anywhere but the florida democratic party has to now learn to get by on its own resources for a while in the mm-hmm. way that some of the AIDS stuff, some of the other state parties have, because they clearly can't win when they have lots of money. So they're just going to have to learn the value of frugality and self-reliance while we spend money on winnable races for the time. Well, wasn't uh, DeSantis's first uh, election, I think it was 2018, right? That was very was, close. Wasn't it very close? So what, what do yeah. you think has happened? Uh, well, there's a couple things. Um, first of all, DeSantis was a popular incumbent governor, and this makes liberals sad to hear, but it is nevertheless true that uh, governors, t- incumbent governors, again, tend to be popular. Uh, he has firm control of the legislature who lets him do whatever he wants, and DeSantis is not stupid. And so even though he pulled, he did various cruel publicity stunts. Uh, to sort of own the libs, if you will. Mm. Uh, He didn't do it at the expense of good governance. And say what you will about DeSantis, but so far, he is not a cock-up. And so the Florida legislature, they did pass an abortion ban. Do you know when they set it at? 15 weeks. 15 weeks is not super unpopular. It is a more strict ban than I would like. But if 15 weeks is as far as the, a Republican trifecta goes, they are in most in a state like Florida, they're not going to be punished for it. And so he didn't overreach. 
Uh, he, you know, Florida's economy is doing well. He manages to clean up well after hurricanes. Uh, people, by and large, I mean, nobody in any gubernatorial race this year except Nevada was punished for how they handled COVID. Not Gretchen Whitner for being too strict. Not Ron DeSantis for being too loose. Only Steve Sisolak because, uh, as one commentator put it, Nevada is basically the tourist equivalent of a petro state. And so the COVID shutdowns destroyed their economy and pissed a lot of people off. And so he was criticized for how he handled that. But other than him, it just didn't matter. And so all the stuff that a lot of like nationwide liberals say that like they hate DeSantis for, a lot of Florida voters either don't know about or don't care about. And so he was popular. Um, also, thanks to uh, like most of the time, people don't move for explicitly political reasons. Like most most movers do not. That's that's rare. Florida is an exception. And it does appear that, well, first of all, hundreds of thousands of elderly conservative retirees move there every year. And so Florida is a state where demographic turmoil and migration benefit Republicans rather than Democrats. You had uh, the Latinos who live in Florida are more conservative than most everywhere. And more and more of those people were moving to Florida. Uh, a number of those voters also, there's something, I don't know why, a lot of Latino voters, I'm not trying to essentialize, but there's just no other way to put it. Uh, the various demographics have various sort of behavioral quirks in elections. And there's a segment of Latino voters who tend to be very pro-incumbent in a whole host of elections. And Florida was no exception. And so all of those things converged. And then you had just now, because Trump's there and DeSantis uh, and, and Rubio pulled off those, or not Rubio, sorry, ugh, Rick Scott pulled off that upset in the Senate race in 2018. Uh, more and more conservatives have flocked to Florida, and it's been viewed as this sort of new headquarters of the Republican Party. And so for yeah, it's all being of, uh, marketed as almost like a, an oasis. Almost. Yes. I was wondering how much it uh, inward, inward migration has, that has created. I also heard them. that... Um, because of the hurricanes and some people have left the state as well. Some did, but I think more moved down there for COVID. They also have, they have an extremely favorable tax rate for retirees. Um, and so between aggressive marketing to conservatives with money who would actually be inclined to move for sort of political reasons, and then all the other stuff we talked about, uh, the, the trends in Florida are just in favor of the Republicans in the in the near term. And so it is going to be during this sort of particular alignment. It is if Florida is competitive, it's now going to be because the Democrats are having an amazing year, as opposed to the past 20 years when it was a red leaning swing state where Democrats could compete in. Um, yeah. And it's so, yeah, I think that that sort of covers uh, the, the Florida change. And it wasn't just DeSantis, but he was smart enough to be a part of that. And finally, we should add his administration has been very, uh, very hostile to local media in such a way that uh, DeSantis's relationship with the press in Florida, he's just not being conservative press is giving him Pravda like coverage. The local media in Florida is by nationwide comparisons, relatively neutered. 
uh, by the DeSantis administration. And so he's not receiving the kinds of scrutiny that he would in a nationwide race. And so I'm not claiming to know what'll happen if he tries to take his act nationwide, but that it is not a, a sure thing that his brand is going to easily convert to a presidency run in the same way that we all, nobody, we did not get President Scott Walker and, and people thought he was going to be a real force to be reckoned with in 2016. And it turned out he had the charisma of a week old bologna sandwich, which is about <laughs> what he eats for lunch every day. And like, there's other governors where that's happened too, where they, they have a local pizzazz and they try and take it nationwide and it absolutely bombs. And DeSantis uh, does not have Trump's form of charisma. I can't believe it, but you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he obviously in 2018 ran as an unabashed Trump impersonator. Uh, he had all these cringeworthy ads of him talking to his children and teaching them to repeat Trump slogans. You can still find these on YouTube. And if you look at him speak now, he even imitates Trump's gestures. So he does the like accordion when he, with his hands uh, and he does the, uh, he does the sort of finger gestures and he makes the like vagina hands and like all the rest um, <laughs> gestures, all the rest. And so it'll be really interesting to see if they run against each other uh, because DeSantis is not going to run as an anti-Trump person. He's trying to be like the non-Trump Trump candidate, but he is such a blatant Trump impersonation that that will be very Fascinating to see how the uh, the sort of, you know, the knockoff variety, how the generic knockoff brand of cereal compares to the original uh, in a in a face to face matchup. So before we finish up, then, can I just get, get a couple of predictions from yourself? Then, Ian, one, do you think DeSantis will run for presidency in 2024? And if he does, do you think he will be able to defeat uh, Donald Trump in the primary? So I think he will run. Because. He's he, even though he's young, there is something to be said for uh, a window of opportunity and missing your moment. And four years is an eternity in, in politics. And so if Ron DeSantis doesn't seek the nomination this time, who knows who else is popular or what happens? And so I think he is going to seize his moment. That said, uh, the reason why he's hesitant is because. There's the twofold. Running against Donald Trump in a Republican primary is going to be a brutal undertaking. Uh, you know, there's going to be threats on his life. There's going to be all kinds of unpleasantry that isn't discussed enough. The amount of harassment anybody gets who stands up to Trump. But then there's going to be the thing that even if he wins, it's going to be a poisoned chalice because as long as Trump draws breath and is in good enough health to want to be president, can you imagine a world in which Donald Trump is defeated in a fair election for the Republican primary <laughs> and then responds by saying, good show. I now want us to all get behind and be team players and support the nominee. Oh my God, imagine he runs as a third party candidate. Of course he will. He, he, he 100% will. That's the real reason nobody wants to challenge him. They think this needs to be, this is the underappreciated fact of the real reason why no Republicans have stood up to Trump because the difference between Donald Trump and even Ted Cruz is that Ted Cruz does have certain objectives that he cares about 
that he would not, even though Ted Cruz will knife individual and, and sell out individual fellow Republicans in the Senate, which is why they all hate him, Ted Cruz fundamentally will not uh, tank the party and throw away an election. Donald Trump will. <laughs> and so he, everybody knows that in order to fully get rid of Donald Trump, the Republican Party is going to have to be willing to lose an election. This is why they did not vote to find him guilty in February of 2021. Mitch McConnell and company hated his guts. The real reason that they didn't vote to convict is that if Donald Trump is impeached, what happens? Does he go to jail? No. Do they take away his microphone? No. Donald Trump becomes the first president in American history to be removed from office. Thanks. And the only reason this happens is because of votes from his own party. Who do you think Donald Trump is going to blame for that turn of events? And who is he going to spend the rest of his life working to destroy? Oh, that's right. Every senator who voted to remove him. So if Donald Trump had been found guilty in February of 2021, the Republicans would have lost this midterm election in a landslide because Donald Trump would have found a way, almost certainly, to come up with a third party movement to keep his people at home and cost all those people their reelections. And that is why Mitch McConnell and company did not vote to convict because they figured, you know what, we hope he can go away and we don't have to do this. Maybe he'll die. Maybe he'll choke on a, choke on a hamburger. That's what we want to happen. They want him to go away. And now he didn't do that. And so the wonderful thing, both for democracy and as a Democrat about 2022, is a lot of Republicans are looking around and going, oh, fuck. I guess we have to rip the Band-Aid off now. And so if there is an election that the Republicans can safely throw away at the presidential level, it is probably 2024. Wait, because but this just, just in your counterfactual, if you t throw away, I know it's difficult, throw away the idea that Trump will run. Yes, and split party. the vote. Yeah, and split the vote. Can DeSantis beat Biden? Uh can this, oh can DeSantis beat Biden in a three-way race? No. In a in no. a in a in a one on one. In a one-on-one, -on -one, yes. Uh it would be competitive like all these other elections are. In a one-on-one -on -one race, the uh especially since we don't know what the economy is going to be looking like, uh, and there's all kinds of other factors. DeSantis absolutely could defeat Biden. Now it's not a guaranteed, it's not a sure thing. Incumbents usually win. And there's no telling how popular or not DeSantis would be. But the the likelihood of DeSantis defeating Donald Trump in a primary and then getting to compete with Biden one on one are extremely slim, assuming Donald Trump remains alive and not having a stroke or something. And so that's why uh, and that's that's the real reason that Ron DeSantis is so hesitant to do this. Because that won't be no Republican who beats Donald Trump is going to get to compete against Biden on a one on one. And they know it. They absolutely know it. And so throwing away in 2024 means Donald Trump is going to have a third party or a protest movement. And so what Republicans are going to be reduced to is pleading with voters to split their tickets and vote for a Republican Congress, especially Republican Senate. And because of the absolutely atrocious Senate map, or Democrats in 2024, there is a very doable possibility for the for Biden to win re-election in maybe even a landslide margin, and yet for Democrats to lose the Senate. And if they do that, 
Republicans can neuter this Repu- this Biden term or Harris term or whatever from day one and can prevent them from even having a cabinet, let alone any justices. And so for the Republicans, I would think that would be a fair trade. And then probably in 2026 with a Democrat in the White House, the midterms will go well for the Republicans if they have managed to cleanse uh, the, the Trumpists from their system. And they can have a, a regular midterm romp and win a bunch of races and be in a good position to win win a trifecta in 2028 and do all kinds of crazy shit they want to do. Like that would be the uh, the sort of best. That's probably the the good case scenario for Republicans defeating Donald Trump or uh, challenge, challenging Trump in the primary, and that's what would happen. But the thing is, the Republican Party since 2016 has been unwilling to even sacrifice one election cycle and they they refuse they can't do it and their refusal to take even a short-term hit has been the reason why they haven't ripped the band-aid off and because of the way that they outperformed dismal expectations for their fortunes in both 2018 and 2020 it masked the fact that Donald Trump is still a drag on the ticket and a loser. But because they didn't lose as bad as they feared they would, uh, uh, and because of the stupid fraud stuff, they haven't been able to fully reckon with this. But 2022, hilariously enough, since their expectations were so higher, it became blatantly clear that, oh, he really is a loser, and this really is bad for us, and for purely self-centered reasons, we need to deal with this. I love, I love how crazy your prediction is. It, 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 to me, it's like a Salvador Dali painting. But the funny <laughs> thing about it is like it's incredibly logical. Yeah, <laughs> all this stuff is going to happen. <laughs> it's so it's so insane. I just can't believe it. But but it's I I can't argue with it. Yeah. And any that's the at bottom. Like anybody who has any of these arguments about Trump behaving in a non selfish manner, I don't understand. I'm like, where are you getting this information from? Like where? Come on, I think I think we would all appreciate if Donald Trump went Ross Perot. I think um, that would. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Mm. I want it to happen real bad. Uh, sorry, Bomb. Did you have something to to say on this? Um, no, just that's. I I agree with um, everything that Ian just said, but definitely what Toby just said that it <laughs> it does seem like a such an abstract kind of thing, but when you. Put it so simply, yeah, that sounds like that's exactly what's going to happen. But I would prefer if we didn't besmirch Ross Perot. Your boy. Such a man. <laughs> yeah, true. What a man, what a man, what a man, what a man. <laughs> uh, people should all check out, I did a Perot episode on mainly history because Maine, Whoa. Maine was his best state in 1992. I and love how bad shit everything about Ross Perot is. Why yes. was state um that's a great uh because maine maine is genuinely weird um and a lot of like independent voters and like third party people exist and ross was just like a little bit of this and a little bit of that uh and there was there's a lot of mainers who are um pro let's see how would how would i put this let's see yeah they're they're in favor of like 
balance budget kind of things. And also there's a real environmental strain in parts of the state. Mm -hmm. And yet there's also an anti-immigrant strain in the state. And it's this very ideologically heterox state where you will get these local candidates who will run and they'll say things like, I want to build a wall with Mexico, but also make it carbon neutral. Like uh, <laughs> vote for me for a local representative from like Waldoboro or whatever. And like, that is a very main thing. Absolutely. When we covered the 92 election on a previous episodes, most of my memory of that was just Vaughn's incredulous sort of reaction slash her retelling of, of Bush's reaction to what Ross Perot was doing. It's uh, I didn't know Ross Perot. I had never really looked at 90s politics in, in any kind of academic or serious way at all. So I didn't really know who Ross Perot was. I just knew his name. And I watched the the first debate with yes. Ross Perot and Clinton and Bush. And it was just one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen. <laughs> I would Did you see... recommend everyone watching it if oh, you need a sure. pick me up. It's you wonderful. know what you need to watch also? His infomercials. So I'm going to confess. <laughs> so, okay. So Con- personal confession right. story time. A young Ian Saxene was in third grade <laughs> in 1992. Um, I was watching my shows in the, you know, late afternoon on TV and they were interrupted by a, by half hour paid infomercials by Ross Perot. And it was just him sitting at a desk with a bunch of pie charts and a pointer telling some facts. And I was mesmerized and convinced (laughs) I was a diehard Ross Perot voter in 1992, I still remember some of the things he said where he was like, did you know, did you know that President Bush, he wouldn't know the difference between a potato chip and a computer chip? Is this a leadership <laughs> we need in the 20th century? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, what about what about Governor Clinton? Did you know? Did you know Arkansas? Did, Arkansas is just the poorest state in the country. Do you want America to turn into Arkansas? I don't want America to turn into Arkansas. Do you? I don't I don't either. No, I don't think so. And so, and he had all these phrases and all the rest. I was like, hell yeah, everybody needs to vote for Perot. And I was devastated <laughs> that he didn't win a single state. Um, I voted for him in my local elementary school presidential election, in which I'm sure everybody except for me voted based on how their parents did. Um, and I remember telling my dad, like I saw his infomercials and he's he speaks to me. And my dad was like, <laughs> yeah, that seems about the target audience <laughs> for Ross Perot. <laughs> Um, and he'd have these phrases where he'd be like, that's the beauty part. Um, did you know why he, what he said, why he backed out? Because he dropped out of the race uh, partway through and then got yeah, back then in. Came, came back, yeah. But I, he I, said that like, did you know uh, that there is a conspiracy? Uh, my daughter is going to get married and there are people who have pictures of my daughter and I will not put my family through this. And he was convinced that there was some conspiracy that was going to like mess with his daughter's wedding is what he said. And so what? why he got out of the race um, and like the Bush White House was going to uh, was going to, to, to do this. And so, so that was the reason he dropped out of the race. Um, oh, my God. He just yeah. had so many good things. And he had his campaign song that he would walk out to was Patsy Cline's Crazy. He's one of the best figures in American history. I yes. mean, I'm happy like he was never president, but just like like it just. Oh, I love everything about his aesthetic in a retrospective view of like, thank God that never happened, but thank God it happened a little bit so I can see it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. oh my God, what a spectacle that man is. 
Well, I was not expecting us to go full Rothbro in the end of this episode, but I'm well, really you glad brought we... him up. So I, I did, yeah. I, I was. Well, I, I can say I was only going to blame myself, but I'm very thankful to myself <laughs> for for bringing him up because Ian's wonderful impressions has um, <laughs> has highlighted that just why we need more Ross Perot in our lives. So <laughs> thank you for that, Ian. Everybody um, needs more Ross Perot. He's <laughs> everything that he everything that he does is just a gem in terms of, you know, yes. uh, all the rest. There's a great dollop of episode about him. These comedians who like tell stories and do impressions and stuff. And they had all these amazing, uh, he apparently had this very fantastical involvement trying to get hostages out of uh, Iran. Uh, he was involved in the sort of missing POW movement and all that stuff um, in very insane ways. He also went and spoke to the NAACP um, and talked to them all about like black crime and like problems of responsibility. <laughs> yeah, Dave, Dave Anthony from the Dolls been on this podcast as well. Really? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We did oh my episode. God, that's amazing. It's my favorite episode, actually. Sorry, guys. <laughs> How did you get him? I'm so jealous. We, we, we have we've a lot got of, our powers. It's not yeah, we've got a lot of political pool. Um, yeah. yeah, you do. That's it's, that's it's amazing. It's an excellent episode, though. It was on the West Wing. I would highly recommend it to yeah. Ian and our audience. If you who haven't. knows who of you knows him, we all do now. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, to- Toby just tends to have connections in various places. <sighs> sometimes they're paid. Sometimes they're political. Okay. Sometimes they're blackmail related. But he okay. he has he has connections all over the place. So, um, okay. Yeah. So Interesting. Toby's a very powerful figure. We're very lucky to have him. Okay. Well, for crossovers, everybody should listen to last year's classic uh, episode Vaughn and I did for the the Christmas special for Mainly History, where we talked about terrible Christmas movies that were filmed or set in Maine. Um, That was a real... It was a laugh and a half. I really liked it. Okay, we're 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 gonna have to end the show here because if we start going into Christmas episode or Christmas films, this podcast is gonna go another two hours. So everyone should go listen to uh, mainly history (laughs) and um, the Ross Perot episode, which I'm gonna queue up immediately, and then also the Christmas episode for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ian, you're you're absolutely fantastic. We've actually had someone who was like a, a wide American post and, and a history uh, professor as well. But like you, you're you, like your analysis is on the same level, you know, despite you not like being professionally doing that, but just, you know, being a history professor and, and doing a pop, pop podcast, like there's so much sociology that you brought out mm-hmm. when you talk about the different states. It's, yeah. It's really, really. Yeah, fantastic. It's, it's been it's absolutely like, fascinating. Yeah. So thank you. Ian. I echo everything Toby just said there. Well, thank you. And uh, I hope that uh, I hope that we'll be able to speak again in uh, I think we still should be using measurements of truss for time. I, I really think uh, what was the trust term? Was it 41 days? 45. 45. I like that. I mean, if there's a fortnight, why can't there be a trust term? Exactly. Mm. Like, <laughs> oh, Scaramucci. Chris, yeah, I know. And Scaramucci works too. <laughs> And he's used it himself. But like, I think I like that idea of like, I'll be home in just a truss. I'm, yeah. I miss my family so much. The solid know? six weeks kind of thing, you know? Yeah. But, like, yeah. oh, Christmas is only a truss away. It's exactly. time to get, it's time to get, to get ready. Um, yeah. So uh, I hope to see you in not too many trusses. 
Yes, and uh, I, I agree. We'll to have you back on at some point or for us yeah. to venture over to your side. And if you ever want to set Vaughn off, just mention Betsy DeVos and you can speak for hours. So um, it's yeah. true. She's uh she's a talented lady. <laughs> she is both Betsy and Vaughn. I won't Vaughn. do that. I won't do that right now, Simon. I will let you sign off for Thank us. You. Okay. Wrangling cats right now. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. From Ian, from Toby, from Vaughn, from Ron DeSantis, and from our, our boy from 92. Um, thank you very much for listening and we'll have another episode in the near future and uh, it, it may or may not in, in involve um, Betsy DeVos or any other political figure that, it's um, going to involve a giant sucking sound because <laughs> all the jobs all the jobs are going south <laughs> <laughs> thank you Ross um, we will hope to have you back on uh, Mr. Pro in the near future um, and until then uh, thank you very much for listening goodbye goodbye goodbye